Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, the Sweetest Fruits has already garnered some fantastic acclaim. LitHub has said of it, Trong does what she does best, painting a vivid portrait of privilege, restlessness, and tenacity through the conflicting experiences of characters grappling with their senses of love, family, and home. Anthony Marr calls it a sublime, many-voiced novel of voyage and reinvention. And then a little bit about the author. Monique Trong is the author of three novels, The Book of Salt, Bitter in the Mouth, and Now the Sweetest Fruits, and her work has been published in 15 countries. Her awards and honors include the Penn Robert Bingham Fellowship, the New York Public Library Young Lions Award, the Asian American Literary Award, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters Rosenthal Family Foundation Award. Oh, that's a long one. Um, Deep Tran is a chef and former owner of Good Girl Dinette in Los Angeles. So good. <laughs> um, she's an advocate for raising the wages of workers in the restaurant industry. Most recently, she was featured in the second season of Emmy Award-winning series, Migrant Kitchen. Please welcome Monique and Deep. Hi, everybody. Hello. Um, okay, well, actually, um, I didn't know that you were going to be introduced by someone else, so I was going to introduce you and oh. then ask you to um, start with a little reading. Okay. So, um, anyway, uh, thanks everybody for coming, and I, I think it should be nice if, uh, just to have a, a little taste of the sweetest fruits, and then we'll go into a, a little conversation. Shall we? We shall. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Do you know what's awesome about all of you, besides the fact that you're here, um, is that, you know, coming out and actually um, supporting a writer is an incredible act of generosity. And I really, really appreciate it. And I'll, I'll give you a little uh, tip for when you can't come out to um, support your other friends, don't email them on the night of, <laughs> okay? And say, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't. <laughs> it's all right, They're, trust me, the writer will know <laughs> that the person wasn't there, okay? So, um, so hey. <laughs> um, if I haven't already announced to you one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I'm incredibly jet-lagged. Um, not just from my flight today from uh, JFK, but also because I had just come back from Switzerland. So now I'm, my jet-lag has jet-lag, um, which is gonna make tonight very interesting. Okay, oh God. All right, so, um, so I, I'm just gonna read you a couple pages of how uh, this book begins, okay? And then we'll give it context later on. Patricio Lafcadio Hearn was born hungry. I could tell by the way that he suckled from the first time that his mouth 
found the nipple. He was not want to let go. His eyes opened and unblinking, watching and daring me to tug myself from him. All babies were born with an empty stomach, but not all of them were born with such need in their eyes. His elder brother, Giorgio, my first blessed one, had to be coaxed and tricked. The tip of my little finger dipped in honey was what he took first into his rosebud mouth. Then, patiently, I would guide him to my breast where honey and milk would mix. This soothed him, but it was not enough to keep him. Giorgio shared my milk with Patricio for less than two months. I beg of you, do not call them George and Patrick. Those are not their names. Their father's language is not mine. Even before I was certain that there would be a blessed second, I suffered his appetite, which was growing in me swift and strong. Patricio demanded of me the small things from the sea. Welks, which no one sold, because the people on Santa Maura, same as on Cerigo, the island where I was born, would not buy something that they could gather like pebbles at the shore. In the mornings, I would leave my first with old Iota, the only woman on our lane with no children of her own, in order to bend over the wet sand until I felt lightheaded or until my basket was full. Patricio wanted the whelks boiled, their spiral of flesh removed one by one. He allowed me olive oil and lemon juice with them, but never vinegar. When there was no longer a doubt and whelks became too difficult for me to collect, Patricio insisted on cockles, of which there were cellars, because cockles were found on the sandbars far from shore, where the tide came in like the hand of God. To lose your life for mere cockles is a curse as old as the sea, and may you never hear it spoken. Thanks. Okay, I was so hungry, <laughs> and I was, uh, that was so beautiful, and I, that was like, the moment I uh, opened the book and I read about it, this is gonna be so good. <laughs> um, it, uh, anyway, um, I'm kind of like a little uh, speechless a little bit because I admire you so much, and this is like a big thing, so anyways, I'm trying to kind of try to be as cool as I can. Okay. But um, it's a really an amazing book. And, you know, you know, I've like, 
loved all your works, and I just, it, uh, I really wanted to live longer in the world that you created. Aww. So thank you so much. So I really want to talk about, I want to ask you, can you talk about the origin of this book? Like, what was it that prompted you to, exp uh, your in prompted your exploration of Love Caldo Hearn? Right, okay, so um, time for context. Um, Lafcadio Hearn um, uh, was a half Greek, half Irish author who lived from 1850 to 1904. And um, I came across hi uh, him first through um, a Southern food angle uh, I was fact-checking my first, um, rather my second novel, and um, I had a Southern Foodways Encyclopedia, and in it there was an entry about Lafcadio Hearn, and the reason why is because um, when he was a young man, he came to the United States and worked as a journalist in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then in New Orleans. And while he was in New Orleans, he wrote what is considered the very first Creole cookbook to be published in the United States. And, um, and so this is how he's remembered um, in New Orleans and among Southern food scholars. But really his claim to sort of fame in the literary world is that after he left New Orleans, he um, moved to Japan. And the last 14 years of his life uh, were lived there. And he became known as a Western expert on Japanese folklore, ghost stories, and fairy tales. So now this little entry that I read was a very condensed version um, or uh, chronology of all that. And frankly, none of it made sense. You know, like how did this, this cookbook author you know, half Greek, half Irish, end up in Japan. How did how did he become an expert? Um, I mean, all those things were, you know, questions for me. And um, and when I have a lot of questions, they often end up as a novel. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you had those questions. <laughs> And because I had never heard of Lefkado Hearn, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't a student of like Southern cuisine. But uh, when I was telling folks that I would be in conversation with you, they're like, all the Japanese people are like, oh, Lefkado Hearn, we know who he is, you know. So he like he looms large. Yes, he does um, because he wrote a well, his most famous collection, I would say, of ghost stories is called Kwaidan, and Kwaidan was made into a really fabulous film. Um, in, I think it was in the late 60s, um, yes? Oh, good, okay. We have uh, a Hearn uh, fan. <laughs> um, yeah, and in Japan, he is uh, still read and is beloved, you know, um, for a very peculiar, well, it's not peculiar, it's understandable. Um, the reason is that, you know, he was living in Meiji era Japan, right? At a time when um, many of the Japanese intellectuals were, were moving very fast towards Western thought and, and uh, sort of, you know, uh, narrative practices and so on. And here was this Westerner who came in and said, but wait, you have these incredible stories and I'm going to uh, retell them and share them. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and uh, in the process, he managed to preserve something that might have disappeared. Um, so when you're talking, I, I can feel that there's admiration uh -huh. for Hearn. Yes. Um, wh how did that admiration evolve? Yeah, it wasn't there from the beginning, um, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, um, because, well, uh, uh, like I said, one of my first questions about him was how did he become this expert, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I made certain assumptions, um, and then uh, one being that he must have been fluent in Japanese, mm -hmm. right? Um, and from the biographies that I read about him, they were very cagey about that, mm -hmm. whether he was fluent or not. And I was like, why is this, why is this fact being hidden from me, you know? Uh, well, because he wasn't fluent, right? And doesn't that undermine the notion of being an expert? Yes, it does. <laughs> mm -hmm. Speaking as someone who has lived in Japan to research him and not having Japanese, the, um, the, he was at a huge linguistic disadvantage, right? So then the question becomes, okay, so who did he work with? Right? How did he collect these stories? And according to the biographers, it was very much about, oh, there were you know, young Japanese scholars and academics who were fluent in English who were his translators and interpreters. Okay, that makes sense. But then, as I read more and more about him, his Japanese wife, Setsu, emerges as someone who was more likely than not the really the person who collected uh, and sort of shared with him uh, the folklores, the ghost stories, uh, and the fairy tales. Because if you think about it, these are the stories of the common man, right? And common woman, common people. And these are not the stories that necessarily the, um, you know, the Japanese scholars would think were uh, something worth sharing with a Westerner, right? So, yes, uh, but I came to that late in the process because I actually had to go to Japan to meet scholars, Japanese scholars who positioned Setsu in that way as a collaborator with Hearn. Um, uh, because Western biographers would write about her in this way. They would say she was illiterate in English. Well, Hearn was illiterate in Japanese, you know. Um, but they would never uh, then follow up and say that she had an eighth grade education in, and therefore could read and write in Japanese. Her, um, her family was a former samurai family. And so she was, um, as a girl, actually able to go to school to a limited extent, but enough so. Um, so they would also talk about her in the way that Hearn talked about her in his letters, which is she's a nice, submissive Japanese woman. And I like her very much. Um, and you know, um, she's not essentially pushy and uh, as the Western women that I left behind. That was 
that was it. Um, and I thought about that. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I thought, hmm. Okay, so here you have, in Meiji era, a Japanese woman who is willing to marry uh, a Westerner and uh, have four uh, children with him, create a life with him. To me, she doesn't sound submissive. Mm -hmm. She sounds strong. She sounds as if she knew what she was doing and that she probably did it for a reason. And I wanted to know the reason, right? Right. And, um, and it was when I went to Japan and to Matsue, the town where they met, where there's now a museum devoted to Hearn. Um, and they also celebrate um, St. Patrick's Day every year. <laughs> they have a parade, uh, a big citywide parade. Wow. Yeah, I know. And they also uh, make a really good Irish stout there at Shimane uh, Brewery if you should ever go. Um, but um, can I? Uh, sure. Because I think when, um, when I hear, when people try to describe uh, this book, they say, oh, it's about Lafcadio Hearn. Yeah. And so it seemed like he would be the most important figure, but he actually isn't the most important. He kind of, he is like in the periphery and, um, and uh, because he's like, he, because he cut such a fine figure in society. Right. You know, but this, I really love that. It's like, but it was the ability of the women in, in his life that he's able to cut this fine figure and I like the shade that all these women throw and it's like in it it's like you can it, it, there's still love in there but there's mm -hmm. still like uh he he doesn't come off as an expert he just comes up as this guy who doesn't know a lot of stuff <laughs> just ask questions and these women are like duh you know like so I love the just it's, it's a quiet but it's not quiet it's just like there's a, like a lot of rage in there like mm -hmm. um so I mean I wanted because it's because uh, they were so overlooked in like history and, and, and scholarly work, like w did you have to, like what was the research involved to uncover, like you said that it took you, you know, to, to, to meet up with one scholar to find the death date of uh, one of the main characters. Uh, right. Yeah, Alethea. Alethea? Alethea. Alethea. Well, that's, that's how I pronounce it. Um, All right. If anyone has anyone listened to the audio book, what is it called? In, uh, what, well, what, what is her name? Well, I suggested Alethea, but I don't know. Oh, okay. If it, I'll it, check. I'll the check. Suggestion went through or not? Um, right. Well, you know, before I answer that, I want to say that this is the thing about Hearn and men like him. Right. We have to acknowledge begrudgingly that without them, without Hearn, I wouldn't have met Rosa okay. or Alethea or Setsu, right? The, the three main sort of narrators of this novel. And um, uh, yeah, without him, yeah. If, if it's, it's because he lived and, and they like, they supported his, his endeavors, you know, um, that they, that we still have some vestige of them, right? Mm -hmm. Because history, as we know, is a partial history, mm -hmm. so partial. <laughs> um, 
in the fact that you know everything had to go through essentially, I mean, not all history, but let's just talk about Western history. Um, it had to go through a white man before it was history, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It had to be seen and documented by their eyes or didn't exist. So yes, so that's the begrudging part, right? But at least I, I at least we have uh, remnants of a Rosa and Alethea Asetsu. So in terms of the research I did and trying to sort of find them in history, um, uh, I mean, I could talk forever about it, but so I'm, I'm gonna sort of narrow it down to uh, Alethea's research. Mm -hmm. And um, Alethea was his first wife, and he met her in Cincinnati. Uh, they were around the same age, just around two years age difference. She was uh, a formerly enslaved um, uh, biracial woman who um, was born in Kentucky and went to Cincinnati after the Civil War ended and was working as a cook in the boarding house where Hearn would eventually have a room. And um, I based her voice on two documents. One um, was um, actually an article that Hearn himself wrote about Alethea. And it was a feature article that he wrote in the Cincinnati uh, commercial. And they were already married at this time. They were living, you know, they were keeping house as the term was. Um, and he's, he's essentially writing about, it's pretty clear that he's writing about how they really got to know each other. Like that, mm. that first conversation, right? And what drew him uh, to her. And, and it was basically, he, he writes uh, about himself in the third person, that he's a reporter. He is sitting on the steps of a boarding house uh, kitchen and the cook, and he describes her and it's clear that she's biracial. Um, and he talks about how she's a ghost seer, right? And you know that he, he has this lifelong obsession with ghosts and the uncanny and the eerie. And he says that her voice, her story, uh, Telling ability is is you know is just uh, is uh, natural and and you know and he, he, it's clear he's just enamored with it, mm -hmm. and then he puts the rest of the article in quotes, and so it's basically essentially the the documentation of her voice, and why this is so fascinating is because Hearn's other writings about African. African-American subjects, he would assign to them a very, uh, you know, a very sort of broken English, mm. right? A very sort of, um, I, I don't like to use the term pigeon, but mm -hmm. dialect, let's call it, a, the, but um, an exaggerated dialect. And he didn't do that with, with um, Alethea. And I thought, that was significant. Um, and so what was clear about this feature article is that 
she's she is an incredible storyteller. She she talks about uh, the flora, the fauna. The, she talks about the sounds of uh, owls. She talks about, I mean, it's very, like she gives you the full sort of atmosphere of these stories, right? What truly makes a ghost story compelling, right? Just, just truly putting you in that space. Um, and so it was clear, right, why Hearn was so in love with her and why he started to, you know, to really fall for her. But what I couldn't figure out on was why she would fall in love with him. Now, this is the thing. Yeah, because he came up kind of creepy. He, well, you know? okay. A little bit more context about Hearn. When Hearn was, uh, I think when he was 16, he lost vision in one of his eyes. And so um, he developed quite a complex about that and um, uh, became really sort of socially awkward. I think he was kind of socially awkward before. Um, but, um, and then his other eye would later in his life would sort of bulge because it was doing the work of two, you know. Uh, and some people describe him as having sort of a hunch shoulder. Uh, he was 5'3", so he wasn't that tall. Um, and he was just, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, if you met him at a bar, you'd be like, hey, laugh. <laughs> Let's have a drink. Um, so but I, I kind of got it as he because he was because he was demonstrative of like his admiration when she talked and yeah. when she told her stories and that, that's pretty intoxicating if like you're uh, used to be not being seen or heard like hey somebody wants to if I can listen to my story you know like right th and there's like some humanity there I I can see that that is exactly the key hmm. is listening and I would say that Hearn above everything else was an excellent listener. He listened to Alethea's stories. He listened to Setsu's stories. And why that's significant, not be just because of the, the personal relationship that they had with each other, but rather these were also stories told by women. They belong you know, to women and children and the common man. And that didn't deter Hearn. It didn't shut him off from hearing them, you know. And that is what made his name, right, mm -hmm. is that he then retold these stories um, and, and, and really, you know, that's how he achieved his literary fame was because he was listening. Yeah, he right. was a close listener. He was yeah, a close like. listener. Right. The th um, I love how one of the things that Setsu, um, Setsu actually wrote a memoir, a very short memoir about her life with Hearn after he passed away. And um, she described how he would make her tell the stories over and over again until he finally heard them, you know? Um, and... I, I just want to talk a little bit about the language that yes. the two of them used with um, each other. Um, okay, so you've already he heard that Hearn was not fluent in Japanese 
and uh, Satsu didn't have English. So basically, uh, what the biographers, um, and also Hearn, and also Setsu sort of talk about is that there was this sort of um, created language that they use within the household uh, with each other and then with their children. And the language was basically um, simple English words and simple Japanese words, right? So that's the basic. But uh, what Setsu talks about, which is, which is really the thing that like, sparks my imagination is that sometimes Hearn would assign um, a different meaning to a common word, you know, a, a meaning that is um, subjective to the two of them, which is what we all do in relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Close friends or our lovers or partners, we have our private language, right? And we know that that private language is something that's created not just by one person in that relationship. Both people have to agree on the meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Right? It's a co-creation. Right. And yet every single Hearn biographer that I've read talked about it being Hearn's language. So they assigned it to him because he's the writer, right? He's the man. He's, he's the imaginative literary one, as if Setsu had nothing to do with this. I mean, and and uh, I mean, you read that and you know it's wrong. You just know it, <laughs> right? I think you had talked about how like somebody described her writing as quaint or what was it? Like like a pretty, like as if like it's cute or something, like not necessarily like this intellect well, intellectual thing or, right. or intelligent thing. Well, the thing about Setsu is because she, uh, okay, she had an, uh, up to an eighth grade education. She was from Matsue, which is a, um, you know, on the Sea of Japan. And it's, it's pretty, it's, it was a f city of like 40,000 when, when Hearn first came there. So it's not a tiny place for sure, but it had its own, <laughs> and it had its own uh, dialect. And it had its own accent as well. So you can imagine how Hearn must have sounded when he ha spoke the very uh, few words of Japanese that he had, right? And also, you know that Japanese women, and still do to a certain extent, have a sort of a feminine language. They're words that Japanese women will use that Japanese men won't. And there's a joke where about, uh, it's a joke, but it's true, that when you go to Japan and the white men, the young white men who move over there and start dating Japanese women, they actually speak more like Japanese women than they talk like Japanese men, right? So it's... it's I love it. I know. <laughs> they shouldn't be ashamed of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> It's a privilege, <laughs> but, um, and so, yeah, so it, compared to, you know, they eventually did move to Tokyo where, um, where Hearn was teaching um, English, not the language, but like English literature at um, Imperial University, which is um, U uh, University of Tokyo now. But compared to the scholars 
there, you know, the academics, the elite, yes, her language was quaint, but so was Hearn. Right, right. <laughs> right? So, um, but these are the things that I, I, yeah, I pieced together. The biographers couldn't piece it together. They could not even admit that Hearn didn't have Japanese. You know, I mean. How did they skirt around it? Like, you know what I mean? How did, I, I, how did, they, how did it, yeah. Yeah, uh, I can't even tell you at this point how they did it, but okay. they did. So it's just like omission, just. That, omission, okay. yes, of course, yeah. But it's, it's the kind of omission where you're like, remember like when you're a child and you're like, oh, these two people go into a room and then a baby comes out and you don't know why, and you don't know how. That, it, it's that kind of I thing. I still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, <laughs> I want to, um, wh whose voice came to you first? Ah. Uh, um, well, the, the first line of the book came to me. Mm, okay. Yeah, which was that he was born hungry. So it was Rosa's voice. I knew I wanted to begin with the mother because, and the scene of them, of her, uh, or a reference to her breastfeeding him because that's the first meal. That's, right. that's the absolute first meal, right? Mm -hmm. And yet women, <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's, 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 I mean, I don't, I don't even have to say it, right? It's, it's fundamental. It's fundamental. Mm -hmm. It's, it's sustaining. It is, it, it is the beginning. Right. And yet all of that is somehow bizarrely devalued and, and, and women still have to hide behind like blankets and, and like little breastfeeding rooms, you know? I mean, yeah. Well, actually that kind of brings me, I'm gonna jump a little bit, but yeah. I wanted to actually talk a little about like, what I call like the myth, the, the myth of the first Okay. Like, Liv Callahan was the first to write a Creo book, the first uh -huh. to do all the stuff, oh. but he really wasn't. I mean, he do, he maybe have been the first to write it or have given up. Like, okay, it's kind of like both, like the myth of like this white person being the first to do some shit. And then uh, like also like the first woman or the first person of color, like the first woman permitted to do some shit, you know, mm -hmm. the first person called, you know, admitted to something. So like, it's kind of like when you, 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 uh, you like, peg someone as the first woman to do something there's it's almost like a backhanded compliment that women couldn't figure how to do this until now mm -hmm. but then you have this other part where like you know the first white person go to south america and then patent something that already exists so like i really like that it's like he, he's kind of like uh credited to be the first of something but like what this uh book does is it's like actually he he's just the first person who had all the mechanisms <laughs> to, yeah. to make something that like like a book that right. would, would you know stay right. on further and so I wanted to, to talk ask you a little bit more about um, like if um, if well you know anyway maybe that's not the question but um, like if now I'm well flustered oh. <laughs> so yeah so I guess like I kept thinking about that um, uh, your book has to be a certain amount. Like, is there, like, did you, at some point, did you want to just make it about one person? 
versus three, you mm. know, like, would it, would it be a trilogy? You know what I mean? Because it was just like, right. or is it, was there just, you had research as much as you could, like, at some mm. point did you just wanted to do one or was it always considered three? Right. You know? Well, there could have been many more women's voices. Because Elizabeth well, Brisbane. Elizabeth Beeslin is also a voice in this um, in this novel, but I didn't write her voice. She was Hearn's first biographer, and um, they were uh, friends since she was 18. He was probably in his 30s when they met. Uh, she went on to be a, a very well-known um, editor and um, in New York City. And uh, she was also the person who raced Nellie Bly. Do you remember when Nellie did the 80, mm -hmm. you know, uh, around the world in 80 days um, race? Um, yeah. Alif um, like girl reporter. Yes, two girl yeah. reporters, yeah. right. <laughs> right. Um, except Elizabeth lost, so no one remembers her. Um, uh, Yes. So um, there could have been even more women because yeah. there's like a, a whole nother part of his life. Well, it wasn't that long, but it was very significant where he lived in the West Indies and he certainly had lovers there. So and he also I mean, Hearn was for for a man with one eye and kind of short and weird. Um, he like he was quite a ladies man. You know, often he had to pay for the ladies. That's for sure. But, you know, he, he liked... Well, he's a womanizer. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he could have been a sex addict. I don't know. But um, this is the thing, though. I wanted for sure to have this narrative about a well-known traveler, right? Mm -hmm. um, to be... Um, to really be told from the points of view of women who did not have the access or privilege to travel in the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They do all travel, they do all cross borders, but in, in different ways than Hearn was able to, you know? And so I thought that it was important to open up that sort of narrative of the expert, the single expert, right? Yeah. You know, your, um, your focus is on the first. My focus is on the, the. you know, it's like mm -hmm. that awful, awful sort of uh, Mrs. Trump's, like, uh, you know, her her theme, like, be best or something. I mean, it's like, you mean be the one person, be one, you know? Like, right. there's only one best, right? So... She's anyways. Well, she bought. She buys into it. Yes. Yeah, right. Sure. But anyways, the the point is that you know, I wanted this narrative to be opened up. Mm -hmm. I wanted to invite other people who were present to to you know have their say um, because they were there. You know, like I said, history is a partial history, right? So I wanted to sort of invite these women to, to also weigh in, right? Yeah. And, it's, and, it, and you're right, it's not about Hearn. Yeah, it kind of isn't. I mean, when you read it, it's like, that's the, that's the least so? just interesting part, you <laughs> exactly. know, in, in a way. Exactly, but at the same time, right, I have to acknowledge that without Hearn, I wouldn't have these characters, right? Right. Right. 
So I've, I've read reviews where people are like, wow, Hearn's such an interesting guy. How come she didn't write about Hearn? You know, I'm like, well, Hearn left almost 30 books behind and volumes of correspondence. Go read them. You know, why would I spend time doing that? That's absurd to me. You know, why would I celebrate someone who's already celebrated? Well, I, I think you made some fanboys upset. Yeah, I know. I know. Because <laughs> you're kind of ruining a hero. Right. You know? But, yeah. Well, um, screw him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm actually, the, the, my favorite character is Alethea. Uh, and uh, like, yeah, could you tell me more how, I mean, I'm just so curious because it's, it's, you're so good at finding like this person that very little is written about and then you're able yeah. to like unearth all this stuff about them. And like, so like, just, I, I'm very curious about how you were able to research her. And well, with Alethea, you know, there's, there's of course a lot of adjacent research that can be done, right, about, um, um, I mean, besides just like the cooking aspect mm -hmm. of it, but what her life would have been like as a young enslaved woman. All of that, you know, is available through uh, historical records, right? So I did that research. But really, when I thought about her, I, I um, besides the fact that she was this, this incredible storyteller, I told you that there were two documents that I relied on. The second document really, I think, to me, told me what kind of woman she was. She, in 1906, gave an interview to the Cincinnati Inquirer. Um, and that's really kind of the, the um, if you can imagine the section in, of for Alethea that's in the Swedish Fruits as the unedited version of that interview, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why she's giving this interview is because she is filing papers in probate court to, to assert that she was married to Hearn and therefore she is the rightful heir, right? This is in 1906, an African-American woman who does not have access to the written word you know, is doing this. What resolve and will and strength does that take? Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, when you finish that, also like the, how she kept recipes. You know, like it didn't surprise me because like, here's this woman who like, I mean, it, when I read that, I immediately thought of like Tony Tipton Martin's mm -hmm. The Jemima Code. You know, like yeah. that, it's just like, um, just like when you said about like, you know, all women's work is undervalued. I think it's like, you know, we're just like nameless hands that serve, mm -hmm. right? But like, she like, you needed to learn so many skills in order like, she memorized all her, all her recipes. Like, yes. you know, like the, you have to be super intelligent to do all that, but it was just never, it was seen as something natural. Right. You know, something that didn't, didn't, didn't need to be honed. Right, and that it, it only becomes a, um, something noteworthy when someone writes a cookbook, you yes. know, publishes the cookbook like yeah. Hearn did. I love, I love this one uh, segment when like, I think like she like laughs when she hears that he's written a, a cookbook. <laughs> yeah. He's like, she's like, what? What? That guy? The guy that like went to the kitchen with me just to flirt with me or like, you know, to tell me like, 
how to garnish my food because he had it garnished in a restaurant somewhere, you know. Yeah, um, the thing is, when I read, okay, I'm, I don't know if I, I said uh, that the very first work by Hearn that I read was the Creole cookbook. And it was clear from it that he didn't know anything. Um, he, one of the things that he said in the intro to it was that um, men are better cooks than women because they're more scientifically minded, right? Um, facts, facts. <laughs> um, and then it, it but, the thing is, I had to, I, I was trying to sort of unearth this idea of how this man become, you know, how did he become so interested in food that he actually wanted to write a cookbook okay. about it, right? And when I found out that Hearn's first wife um, was a cook, I, I mean, that made total sense, right? You cannot live with a cook. Anyone here lives with a cook? No, okay. Uh, <laughs> and not, you know, sort of take on sort of that, um, that kind of world view where food becomes primary, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I, it, that started to make sense, more sense to me, right? So they were, uh, Alethea and Hearn were married in Cincinnati. When he went to New Orleans, he went without her. So, and they never saw each other again after that. But I, it just, um, how do we get to this? Uh, Alethea is like, you wrote a cookbook? <laughs> oh, right, right. Oh, that's right, her, her incredulousness at this fact. He, um, because yeah. also when, when they were living together, he right. kind of only wanted like Irish food. <laughs> like he, no, he, he was very like, he had very particular ideas about yeah. food. But the thing is, I don't think um, they, they have Hearn, and it comes out in the Alethea section, Hearn has this other life without her, mm. this kind of public life where he goes and, you know, he, is drinking wine and eating bread from Germany and you know, and just like he has this other life beyond their domestic sphere that, and the two don't meet except for this, this kind of intervention that he often tries to make by trying to, oh, you'll love this word, elevate her food, right? Garnish it, you know, um, that sort of thing, right? But yes, she's, I, well, maybe it's not clear, but uh, I don't know, there's no documentation of what uh, Alethea thought of the cookbook. So that's my, that's my, that's my fiction. But um, uh, yeah, she, yeah, I, she would I, have been like, like I, I buy it, yeah. sure, yeah. Right. Um, I wanted, to, I read in an interview that you tried to pitch this, um, book uh, a while ago, and or this novel, and then your former agent said that they wouldn't be able to sell it mm -hmm. because there were no Vietnamese characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you share that? Uh? Yeah, well that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> right? I mean, and, and this is, I'm, I'll tell you, this editor was the editor who 
the editor, I mean, the agent who sold the Book of Salt, who sold Bitter in the Mouth, she's someone who knows my work really well. Um, she's no longer with us. Um, uh, and I think she was actually really talking and, and speaking from a position of just, that's the reality of publishing, you know? And so, but this was maybe, you know, 10 years ago, mm. you know, when I first had this little inkling of an idea and I shared it with her. And it, it did devastate me that this was her response, right? Because I do think that, you know, I think writers and creative folks, we do feel that at a certain, like maybe there's a certain point where where the field opens up for us, you know, because it's it's no longer the first time out yeah. or the second time out. And then to realize that no, 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 darling. <laughs> See how you look? This is your body, this is your identity, so this is what you're gonna write about, you know? And I, I do think that that is, you know, clearly I managed to sell the work, right? It's in the world, but I still think it's gonna have a very um, difficult um, sort of journey out there reaching writers, uh, writers, readers, because it's not an easy sell. It's not, this is, this is a story of my life, or this is, you know, the story of my mother's life, or this is the story of my grandmother's life, you know? I'm not saying that to devalue in any way those stories, but I want, our imagination is beyond our bodies. <laughs> That's imagination, right? <laughs> it's, 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 just like you as a chef, if someone just simply said, oh, you're Vietnamese American, you can only cook Vietnamese food, right? Well, they would say, do you cook regular food or uh, Vietnamese food? Oh, beautiful. That's gorgeous. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they said about rice. Oh, I heard about Good Girl Dinette. Oh, I heard you, you said regular food and Vietnamese food. Wow. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, everybody who knows me knows I hate memoirs. <laughs> so, like, I, I, I just bristle against autobiography because, yeah, like, somehow, you know, that's the only thing you can do. Like, you, you, don't, you don't get to create. You don't get to, get to imagine. And if you get to imagine, you have to imagine it within this, something that looks like you. So, right. that's what I was, I was, uh, I like I'm, that's why I'm so excited about this book actually you mm. know that it's it's uh it's got um such a, a a range of voices you know and it's it's wonderfully written and it's like I it's I think it's going to change people's ideas of like who can write what you know like just like like Hearn Hearn can be anything he, he eventually became Japanese you know like yeah with, yeah, yeah and, and he like, transformed himself but somehow like people call it we can't travel like the only way we travel is like being refugees you know, like right. uh, Alethea, uh, like she she was definitely like a, she ran ran away uh, 
Hearn's uh, mother ran away and then returned right back, you know? But yeah, so, and, and even Hearn's wife, uh, Tetsu, she, uh, she also had to like leave that, whatever, that, that former life of being part of her samurai family, mm -hmm. you know? So like somehow like this under duress versus some sort of yearning for some creative outlet or something like that. Right, and, and with that said though, I, that was also you know, part of the project of imagining them. Yeah, true. Right, is that they, because of the limitations of, the, of these women's lives, um, it does not mean, however, that they did not have desire and will and choices. Yes, yes, right. I, I concur. They are not the same as Hearns and, um, and the men around them, but they do make choices and um, consequential, uh, incredibly brave choices, each one yes. of them. Um, but, you know, I want to say something about being a refugee. I think of the sweetest fruits as a refugee novel. <laughs> okay, just, yeah. I, okay, and, yeah. Except there's no Vietnamese folks in it, <laughs> you know, and, and there are no, you know, refugees mm. uh, that would fit like international law definition of refugees, but it's because I'm a refugee, you know, and everything I write is through the lens of being displaced um, and being no longer tied to a piece of land, mm -hmm. you know, um, and knowing how, how, how that, how land and nationality does not necessarily construct home. I think that's a great way to end, actually. Because oh. <laughs> I'd really love to open it up to Q&A. Who is oh. going to be brave to ask the first question? Maybe the Hearn, the Hearn fan. <laughs> <laughs> my, my world's right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have some people for you to talk to. There's a support group out there for you. Um, uh, totally. I'm jet lagged. Come on, just yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, no. I mean, yeah, probably, but I didn't hear the resistance. I only heard the, the positives, right? Because when a book goes out there, um, uh, you know, you don't sit down and talk with the editors who didn't like it, <laughs> right? You only sit down with the people who are interested in it. And, um, yeah, uh, but I'll tell you that I, I, the resistance that I've, that I've, have faced since is, uh, mm, it's really about knowing how to position the book, you know, and how to position me as the author. And I had the same 
um, issues with the second novel, which is, you know, my, it was a, it was my uh, reimagining of the, a Southern Gothic novel. It was set in the American South. It was, the, of the three books, it's the one that's closest to me. I grew up in the South. <laughs> I grew up in the very town that I wrote about in the second novel, you know, and yet the publisher still could not figure out how to position it or me. Like, it's a southern novel, duh. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm a, I grew up in the American South, duh. You know, but no. <laughs> it, that just didn't happen. So, I don't know. I, I think, I just, you know, there's, there's a, there is, there's a bifurcation, I think, that is happening, um, that has been happening in publishing, where you're, uh, acquiring editor is actually someone who truly does love your manuscript. Like, there's something about it that speaks to them. And then once they acquire it, then all the other little rats come in, right? And they're like the marketing rat and the publicity rats, you know, and they can't figure it out. Oh, hello. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is recognition. You're, you're, this is a mirror coming back. <laughs> but you know, they, 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 it, it becomes this, this committee, right, of people who are trying very hard to package it, to make it into, you know, something that will appeal to uh, a 50-year-old woman in Arkansas. And, and when they can't figure it out, then you are doomed, you, <laughs> author, doomed. You know, and I mean, all I want to do is have the ability to write another book, you know, and I want, and I have these stories within me that I want to continue to put into the world, you know, um, but unfortunately that doesn't, uh, it is no longer about being a mid-list or being like a award-winning or, you know, all, all, all the euphemisms for writers who don't sell a lot of books, right? <laughs> now it's about writers who sell a lot of books, you know, and, uh, and when I say now, you know, I don't mean just like this year. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on since um, publishing houses somehow got into their heads that they are actually going to make a profit. You know, <laughs> what? That's a joke. <laughs> I mean, there are certain, you know, books that will make you a profit, you know, but the bulk of, of, of literary fiction is not, we're, uh, it's, it's never gonna, it's never gonna do that. You know, you have your Margaret Atwood, that's, that's great, yay. <laughs> you know, but the rest of us, we're just gonna tell our quirky little stories and, and hopefully you'll continue to come and, and buy and, and read, you know. But I don't know. I don't know if there's gonna be another novel out of me um, because I, I really do think it's abysmal out there. Um, and, uh, but, you know, maybe I'll, I don't know. Well, I think this book has a lot of traction so far, and it has a lot of momentum. See. I mean, here I am. I know. <laughs>
<laughs> this is the greatest thing about Diet. There are many great things, as many of you know. But that even though you, there is this incredible cynicism in you, there's also <laughs> this... <laughs> because I'm a cynic, like when I see something that really, uh, you know, uh, inspires me, I'm like, hell yeah, this is going to do great! You know, like, yeah. Wow. Let, let's, let's hope there's a lot of dip in the world. There is. Yes. I mean, Publishers Weekly best uh, book, uh, list of best books, 2019, New York Times, recommended reads, editor's list, I forgot what. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I feel very blessed that um, there are editors who are, you know, of these publications uh, that have taken notice, but I, I'll, point out something to you about that Publishers Weekly best of fiction list. D did you notice how many um, titles that were um, novels in translation or short story collections in translation? That is a bizarro list. I mean, not bizarro because these are not great books, but bizarro because they do not reflect book buying taste, you know? Mm. And I'm, I am thrilled that you know, there are so many works in translations, but the the statistics about translated literature, right, in the United States is less than three percent of published oh. books. So, so yeah. Okay. So Publishers Weekly is is kind of like aspirational. Okay. You know. Well, I mean, for, uh, the writing is beautiful. The it's cinematic. I mean, I'm waiting Ooh. for the HBO three-part series. You know, and actually, no, nine-part, three episodes per character. Ooh. You know, yeah. yeah. And Hearn is just like a shadow. You know? <laughs> so I mean, I've, I when I saw, I'm like, this is just. I can um, I can already picture. You know, Rosa I can already Abby. picture this too. But Hearn would be like front and center. Okay, all right. I'm, you know what? If, you know, that's like in life, right? right. <laughs> so let her and be the door into it. I can already see Jake Gyllenhaal as Hearn. He's too tall. What? He's like 5'3". Oh. They'll just make everyone else like shorter. Yeah, statuesque. Or yeah, taller, whatever. Yeah. Well, um... Thank you so much for inviting me to be in conversation with you. I feel like I'm really out of my depth, but I feel like next time I'd love to do a dinner with you. You know, Yay. have whelks and cockles <laughs> and, and sea urchins. Sea urchins. Actually, there's like an infestation of sea urchins in California, so prices are going to go down. <laughs> so, yes. There, there is no way that sea urchins are an infestation. It's true. It's that, a, a, that, that a, is a bumper wealth. crop. That, a, a bumper yeah. crop. They said all the kelp beds are just booming. Let's do something about that. <laughs> you and me. Yes. <laughs> Well, this has been great. Uh, unless there's any other burning questions, uh, you know, we'll, we want to leave time for Monique to sign books, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.